What's up, Elf? Everyone? <laughs> What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Nath. Uh, take about this is take number what thirty something like that. This, yeah, this evening. This is the kind of efforts of perfection we go mm, to. Kind of rusty. So, uh, how are you, Nath? You okay? Yeah, really good. Um, how are you? What have you been up to in our break? Just, just getting excited about doing the podcast. Basically, just missing the podcast, missing you. Yeah. Um, missing knowledge. You know, missing our central role. Oh, well, I think we sort of just. In that, what happened is what happens every time we do a hiatus. We say, "Wow, we're just gonna have a, a little break," and then we just go and hold it together. Yeah, but we we don't do anything for like six weeks, even though it's meant to be like a month. Um, and we say in that time, "Well, we're, we're gonna book in loads of great guests." Mm. Um, but what happens is the time comes around too fast, and we haven't booked anything in, and we just have to do it ourselves. And those episodes are almost uniformly the ones with the lowest list. <laughs> Yeah, which, which, which is how we're going to go, I think. From Just stick stick to me and you. Yeah, stick to, until we have no listeners left, apart well, from people accidentally stumble up on to it. To be fair, like, we haven't done anything for like the last six weeks, I mean, at all, apart from sporadically say on Twitter that we'd like to execute people. And then um, the, the follower count is sort of... What happens? You always get one person drop off after you say you want to execute someone. It's the person you normally um, wanted to execute. Yeah, the work experience child basically said he wanted to execute uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and then uh, we you get like two people unfollow you. And then you get like five more people add, you know, um, follow you. So it's sort of, it's uh, an, it's a, it's a, basically an overall a good thing to do, essentially. It's like an to, investment. It's a way it? to get followers, yeah. Just yeah. Uh, always the execution. how smart we are at Twitter game. It's been... Um, as you said, about six weeks. So it's not going to be... We normally do a little roundup of what's been happening in Wales. We're going to do, like, I guess, a very brief roundup of the big headlines that have been going on the in Wales headlines. for the last probably like five or six weeks, not a week. So there's too much to, uh, you know, I guess, cover in great depth. So we'll skim over it. Um, the attacks on the Welsh language by, you know, the British media or and I guess the British state have sort of really ramped up in the time, in just in these five five or six weeks. I mean, when we first started doing the pod, it was still, I mean, they were still kind of, it would have been seen as a bit outrageous, I think, in post-evolution Wales to start slating the Welsh language. And what you've seen post-Brexit is, firstly, within Wales, people that have a chip on the shoulder about the language have clearly been emboldened and have started coming out, just slating it, saying it's backwards, um, you shouldn't be speaking that stuff. Um, recently, Applied Cymru Councillor was berated, or she said she was anyway, berated for speaking Welsh um, in a shop in North Wales by someone who said she should be speaking English. Uh, on top of that, like more systematically, you've had BBC Newsnight did like a, <laughs> unbelievably did like a show basically saying like, should we keep the Welsh language alive? Well, it was something along the lines of, um, should we keep subsidising the Welsh language? You know, is Welsh is the Welsh language strategy working? And the pre- and and they invited uh, Julian Ruck, who yeah, is like a author, a, a known. I mean, in Welsh circles, he's like a known anti-language bigot. I mean, that's that's all he is. He's a, like a failed writer and someone who is has this vehement sort of hatred for the Welsh language. And somehow he was invited on as like a guest, which is, as people pointed out, akin to getting you know Tommy Robinson on to to talk rationally about like Islam or something like to that. To be fair, just, though, the BBC do a bit, don't they? It's they just, like uh, yeah, they, yeah, they do and they get Farage on and stuff. So, but it's, it's kind of symptomatic of the BBC's, you know, real, really sh- a quite shocking decline and sort of abandonment of any pretense of sort of neutrality. Then you had 
the week, which is that like uh, the junior version of the week, which is kind of that um, roundup of the week's news, but for kids. And they had like a, an article for kids. Well, they had like an, like for like you know like fourteen year old nerds, and it was like they had an article basically saying like, is there any point keeping the Welsh language alive? And then I think it was like Mensa, like the learn you know the people of the society of people with high IQs, basically set around the same story the other day, and were like, was it Young Mensa? We're saying like you know what's the point of Welsh language? So I got a quite so a funny thing about Mensa is those people are more likely to get duped because they just believe into their own hype that they're that mm. smart, so they get uh, cons quite a lot. Yeah, wallet inspector sort of thing. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, what else happened? Um, the prison debate rumbles on. This is like this the new super prison going to be built in Neath Patal, but uh, this is something that hopefully we're going to do another show on very soon with uh, the boy Rob Jones. This is like the prison thing is something that is. <laughs> I feel quite uncomfortable because we're on the same side as like people like Stephen Kinnock. Um, but what's clear is that there are so many people who are opposed to the super prison, not on any like moral grounds that they think the prison industrial complex is terrible or they don't like prisons. They're opposed to it because, oh, I don't want convicts near me. Um, and another, there is also like another nasty undercurrent, which is almost this thing. You see it in North Wales a lot. Um, this idea that, like we don't want English prisoners here. As if like English prisoners are uniquely evil, and you know, uh, whereas like Welsh prisoners are fine. But the problem is like it's not that's not the object. I mean, I, I did say this on Twitter this evening, but the problem isn't with like convicts or criminals. I mean, because you know, these people are just people like anyone else. I mean, I don't like this assumption that they're you know like they're dehumanized. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, people commit a crime like, like as if that, it doesn't make you an alien. It doesn't make you a terrible person. Like, I mean, um, well, actually, in some cases it does, but. Uh, <laughs> But do you know what I mean? Like the whole problem. <laughs> in most cases, it probably does. <laughs> but in but in in, in the, the objection to prison is that prisons are bad. Like prisons are barbaric and they have no place in civilized society because they don't work. Like you shouldn't. Like it's a it's an institution that belongs in you know the Victor in the dark ages, really, like locking someone up for you know twenty three hours a day and then expecting them to be normal. Anyway, so that's keep as uh, rumbled on. Moving outside Wales, um, one of the one of the weirder sort of rows that emerged uh, in like the, the sort of, I guess, the, the London media bubble was Laura Pidcock, the new uh, Labour MP for somewhere, like somewhere in the north, like near Newcastle, just said casually in an interview, like, I'm not friends with Tories and I don't socialise socialize with them in the House of Commons bar. And, you know, why would they? Because they've like, you know, they're putting people on food banks. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, that's something that's, you know, and that created like outroar in the British press. Chess Phillips, so she did rush to to Twitter to tell everyone that Jacob Rees-Mogg was all right. Yeah, open uh, the door for you know. But it, I mean, all bad. It just, I mean, the outrage shows that for the media and the political class, you know, and so many people in the Labour Party in particular, politics is just a game, and that the Tories aren't bad people. Like they have their side, we have our side, but we're all ultimately on the same page. You know, we're, you know, we're all we're all in it together, sort of thing, which is like absolute bullshit and there's this assumption from, that only comes from people that have never witnessed the effects of austerity and Tory economic policy firsthand, which is it's really I mean I just think that's so unproblematic like I mean I'm not friends with any conservatives I'm not friends because you know, it's just it, it just what I mean firstly because you would well firstly I guess in, in terms of like class in terms of my social circles you know my friends are all proletarian <laughs> friends are all proletarian <laughs> my friends are scumbags yeah, hand picked you know, aren't they yeah for the, you know, for their my friends are my friends are drawn exclusively from the lumpen proletariat. Yeah. You know, not even the proletariat. You know, they're 
a, a criminal, you know, low, really low class, you know, clearing uh, <laughs> of, of people. Um, but you know, on a, you, not only would I never, have, to be to be fair, because of I guess my limited, you know, I went to university in Wales, you know, state school, just haven't come in contact with people who are very conservative. But when I have come in contact with people conservative, it's the reactions always the same. It's just complete revulsion, and I wouldn't, if I was friends with them, I'd sort of ditch them. It just wouldn't wouldn't be an issue. It it it, it, it would be a, a friendship ender. Mm. Um, I guess you've got a complete moral like different moral outlook on you of course it is i mean like your politics is a reflection of your morality surely and like you know if you're a conservative you're not a nice person because you're voting people into poverty you know you and, and so on and so forth um story that has happened this week the only um, story is the most heartwarming story um certainly one that sort of cheered my cheered me up like no end this welshman took his sex robot on itvs this morning and admitted he let his kids play with it the dad of two shocked viewers how old are his kids by admitting he let his children play with a hyper-realistic doll called Samantha. All right, so uh, surprise, surprise! I can't even read. I can't read the story. All right, click here to answer a quick question <laughs> to access this article. Like, I don't want to answer. I don't. I don't want to answer a survey to read an article. What the hell's wrong? All right, okay, uh, okay. Please sign up to our sample. Uh, Aaron Lee Wright, thirty-six, appeared on ITV. Oh, only thirty-six. Yeah, he's given up a ghost, isn't he? Um, to appear on ITV to promote the hyper-realistic uh, sex doll thought to be worth around 3500 Is that all? The dad of two defended the doll after Philip Schofield said it felt like a corpse and said it would be uh. making love to a GPS. All right, Aaron left presenter Holly Willoughby visibly shocked when he admitted this is the, <laughs> this is the best thing ever, right? Samantha is fitted with a family mode function and watches TV with his kids aged five and three. He said Samantha has a family mode. She can talk about animals. She can talk about philosophy. She can Dogs. talk about science. <laughs> she has programmed a thousand jokes. I don't even know all of them. There's a lot to Samantha. She's advanced. Our children, they say, where is Samantha? We brought her in the car. They really enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> is oh, he's a co-founder. Right. Aaron's a co-founder of Cynthia Amethyst, a website that sells lifelike sex robots that start in 2000. And his wife died. Uh, I, well, see, he said he said the family mode prevents the doll making any inappropriate comments at the wrong moment. A visibly unimpressed Holly Willoughby asked how the children would react when they're older. She said at some point they're going to go, I'm not old enough to realise that Daddy has sex with Samantha and Samantha is not mummy. Is that not a bit strange? Wait, wait, so she didn't mention anything about the fact it was a doll? No. <laughs> it's like she's basically implying the doll is like a step mum. So the issue is that the doll how's, isn't the real mum rather than it being a... A doll, yeah. a robot. Um, Aaron insisted there was nothing weird about the doll, and was not that, and was there to help people, not replace women. Um, oh, what? <laughs> His wife Hannah uh, oh, Nguyen. Hannah was in the studio and revealed she's happy to share her husband with Samantha, and had even had a threesome with it. Oh my! This is a. T- I didn't realize the pod was going to be this racy and inappropriate. I'm really sorry, but no. This this is, this is the kind of uh, angle we're going. She said, around. "Me as a woman, I'm not offended to have her around. <laughs> me as a woman, <laughs> I am not offended to have." Um, <laughs> I can't uh, let you do that, Dave. Uh, yeah, um, I'm not worried she'll replace me. She's just someone there, like a family member. Yes, we've had fun with her. There's no worry about someone else or an affair. You don't have to worry about a disease. Well, you hope ex- not, wouldn't you? Both <laughs> excellent points. Um, Television psychologist. Wait, she's a psychologist of television, or she's a television. She's a psychologist. Is on to. She slammed the doll. <laughs> she. <laughs> the psychologist slammed the doll. 
calling it damaging. Oh, um, <laughs> she added, just because we can do something doesn't mean we can do. Well, we should do. I think sex dolls are a perfect example. We are commercialising women, but worst of all, we're objectifying them. Very well said. However, I mean, given the amount of like losers in the world, I mean, that guy's going to be making an absolute mint six sex dolls. So it's, it's his company, isn't it? He's founded it's it. It's basically just a PR stunt. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. just on there selling it and the, uh, under the guy. He, he brought his wife with him. Mm. Um, anyway, very smart. All right, so that's, those are the big dolls. Um, big, those, are the, those, those are the big dolls. Those, those are the big stories this week. All right, so on to the uh, more serious, like the very serious topic at hand. Um, this week we're going to be talking about militarism. Uh, as, as I said earlier, what normally happens after our hiatus is we don't do any preparation no. um, and we just have to sort of scramble around for something to talk about. However, in the past, we sort of formed back on uh, the research I've been doing, and I happen to be working on a, a paper at the moment on militarism. And I gave a talk in Copenhagen on this the other day, so this is kind of like piloting my research. You know, Shoehorning in your you exciting get, life you, as well. You're getting you? all, yeah, yeah. Just went to Copenhagen. Uh, I've just flown back. Um, but it means you, you, you get, you're going to get. I mean, other than the people at the ESA conference, you were the, you know, Desolation Radio listeners are going to be the first people to get this red hot academic knowledge, the statistics on militarism, what it means and everything like that. So as ever, we're going to talk about the Welsh angle. Um, some of the stuff in here is, I mean, we're going to review a paper by Stuart Tannock, which I think is one of the, probably one of the best articles I've read on Wales in like the last 10 years. Um, and it's pretty important. It's, um, it's listened to. So only 15 minutes in, off we go. Yeah. All right. So firstly, you know, uh, what is militarism? So is militarism like, I know most other like sort of political science concepts or whatever like you know, socialism liberalism gets thrown around a lot um and it can actually mean a lot of things i've got written down here that's a portmanteau concept i mean it's so basically that just means it's ambiguous it's got loads of different meanings so militarism can refer to uh, an economic strategy particularly the military so we, i'll go back through these and we'll we'll talk through them in detail it can refer to the mil- an economic strategy uh, specifically the military industrial complex uh, it can refer to the relationship between the states in the international system, as in you know how to how states interact with each other, uh, it can refer to the militarization of domestic social relations and apparatuses, as in the militarization of the police, things like that. Related to that last point, it can also uh, describe an ideological um, standpoint or set of values, belief in the military as a good thing, but also a set of values um, that the military sort of embody about sort of power, strength honor and things like that which are unsurprisingly closely linked with fascism normally um and it's also uh we, we've read a you know nathan's read a, a brilliant book on this uh, he's going to talk about it in a minute um an unconscious and banal sort of restructuring of society to reproduce and favor military values and sort of to fetishize the military um so those are all the different meanings but if we had to put uh if we had to describe it militarism is condition in which war or the preparation of the means of war are major social concerns, commanding commanding a significant proportion of resources and enjoying a substantial degree of legitimacy or support within the country. And that's by a guy called Mackenzie in 1983. So we'll move on to Wales, right? So why is it important? Like, as ever, we talk about the, uh, you know, the Wales' social democratic tradition. Since devolution, Wales has sort of like really marked itself as this like a progressive place. Um, but, you know, surprise, surprise, that's actually all hot air and rhetoric because despite all 
these sort of semi redistributive policies that the Welsh government embarks on is still in it, you know very very Wales is an incredibly militarized uh, country um this comes back to the previous sort of uh I talked briefly about Wales's economic situation and how much of a central role a military plays in it you know Wales as you know is a is a very poor country we've talked about it in the past how it's like a lumpen area in the previous episode socialism for the Welsh people we talked about how um, Wales is like a military play. You know, uh, Robert Griffiths and Gareth Miles said that Wales' economy is basically a military playground. So, you know, Wales is absolutely vital for the British military-industrial complex. It always has been. It's always provided a huge amount of land and manpower. Wales, you know, is I think it's like five percent of the UK. Well, I'll get the statistics in a minute, but basically, Wales contributes far more to the armed forces. Uh, than any other country per capita as to but there's an article by uh, Ian Pinkham so basically Ian Pinkham he just basically says like how Wales has always played a huge a multi-dimensional role in the British state's prosecution of war through providing men and providing armaments factories and most importantly through providing land land for training and the, the development of sort of expertise in war I'm not going to go through this article in detail, but I will sort of, uh, we will tweet it. So Arthur Jenkins, the vice president of the, the South Wales Miners Federation and the MP for Pontypool, was the first person to draw public attention to the early significance of South Wales military industrial complex. In 1938, during a plea for the construction of a seven bridge, he observed that Wales is regarded, I suppose, as being one of the safest places in this country should a future war arise, quite near to the seven tunnel at Kaiwent. They proposed to erect a cordite factory. Only six miles away, they proposed to build a railway near the Seven Tunnel to that factory, and they're going to they're spend a very considerable sum of money for that purpose. A few miles away again, at a place called Glasscoid, they were already preparing and working at the building of a shell-filling factory, and it said they proposed to spend £1.5 million, obviously, you know, whatever that is in today's money, and not only did they propose to do that, but they're going to have a dump for munitions driven into the hills. That's just Monmouthshire. He says, you go further west and come to St. Athens, and there we're spending a substantial sum of money again in connection with munitions works. At Bridgend, it's said that we're spending about two million. And if you go further west, still to Burryport, there you have money being there. You have more money being spent. So Ian Pinkham calls this warfareism. So that's the the, mili- the, you know, the military orientation of the state. He says this is warfareism is woven into the fabric of South Wales's history, although it was to a breadth and depth even greater than Jenkins describe uh, Jen- than Jenkins suggested. So basically, like South Wales is integral to what we call the warfare state, from the construction and enhancement of military and naval weaponry to the provision of vital infrastructure, as you said, through land and training. Basically, there was loads and loads and loads of ordnance factories in the in in Wales, like you know, basically making armaments. Uh, private companies as well. During World War Two, this you know Wales was a, like an absolutely massive producer of arms. Um, by nineteen forty two. Wales as a whole accounted for 7% of the total employment of the Ministry of Supply. And in an update of uh, Pinkham's work is this work by Stuart Tannock, which is called Knowledge for What? Wales Militarisation and the Endless... For what? (laughs) Wales Militarisation and the Endless Promotion of the Knowledge Economy. And this article is is quite distressing, actually, when it talks about um, how militarised Wales' economy is, but it also talks about... um, how Wales' economy is sort of basically built on blood money. So 
the introduction is actually insane. Okay, in January 2007, the First Minister of Wales, Rodri Morgan, came out onto the steps of the Welsh Senate in Cardiff Bay to spray champagne in celebration of a successful 14 billion contract to build a new privatised military centre for all the British armed forces and the available organ in South Wales. The sense of merriment was general across the Welsh political class. Welsh MPs in Westminster went to 10 Downing Street to share a celebratory drink with then Prime Minister Tony Blair, while Welsh Assembly members and local county councillors held a champagne-laced party at the future site of the military training centre itself. The St Athen Defence Training Academy, intended to become a world-class, cutting-edge university for the military, represents one of the largest investments in Welsh history. Rodri Morgan proclaimed that the success was a red-letter day for all of Wales and vowed that the St Athen Academy would turn Oxford and Cambridge green with envy when it opens for business next decade. And Tannock writes, What is shocking about this spectacle of unchecked self-congratulation and crowing is that Wales, like the rest of Britain, was at that very moment in the midst of a controversial and strongly opposed war in the Middle East. The British military, who was to be the principal user of St Athen, was reported at the time by mainstream sources to be in part responsible as part of a US-led coalition for the deaths of more than 650,000 Iraqis and the displacement and exile of another 4 million Iraqis since invading Iraq into March 2003, as well as the deaths and devastation of the lives of many young Welshmen who had been brought overseas to fight in Iraq. And just an interesting point, right, at this time it was reported that Wales had the second highest proportion of deaths per capita in Iraq in the whole world after America. Despite the fact that we're in the middle of a controversial, hugely controversial and bloody overseas immoral war, he says, not only was there no organised opposition in Wales to St. Athen Academy, there was no public discussion or debate whatsoever about the many social, cultural, ethical, environmental and political questions that are inevitably going to arise from enormous investment in the military from an organisation with links to the global arms industry. So this is a private company which was extremely dubious, right? So Tanak, this this whole episode sort of sums up all the problems with, with Welsh society, like the, the Firstly, the cross-party militarism and this like ridiculous, like it's, you know, this popping champagne bottles at this the signing of a you know a fourteen billion pound deal with a private arms manufacturer. And Tanak is Canadian, right? And at the time, he was in Cardiff University, and he clearly was like, so. Firstly, there's no criticism from the press. There's no scrutiny. There's no hey, uh, maybe this isn't a good thing. Maybe we shouldn't be you know morally. Maybe we should hitch in our economy to to warfare. And all that is missing. You've got like uncritical. Um, just and, and as we've said in previous episodes, this comes back to the sort of nature of the Welsh economy and the short-termist sort of like amoral nature of the Welsh government. In that all they see are headlines for right. This is going to bring jobs. This is going to bring jobs, and this is going to rejuvenate the Welsh economy. It could be anything. At the moment, it's prisons. Carwin Jones said in the past that he'd happily take Trident nuclear missiles in down in Pembroke if Scotland got rid of them because all they care about is like these headlines about jobs you know what I mean it's, um, he'll do anything Carol won't he I mean you know the point of the Tanex article is like firstly is the failure of the Welsh public sphere to sort of properly debate this um, you know is this right you know is this moral you know to, to be celebrating these like this huge the militarisation of Welsh land and as part of the project I'm doing sort of I've mapped out all the, the bases and training areas in Wales and it's just I mean I'll, when I eventually the paper comes out you'll see how Wales is just completely covered. It's covered in training centres. It's covered in training sites. There's so much land that's in in the UK in Wales. It's owned by the Ministry of Defence. What Tannock focused on was how the military was a central part of the rhetoric of the knowledge economy and how transforming Wales 
from this like sort of low skill, you know, branch plant economy into this high tech world class knowledge economy and you know, the military sector was a key part of that strategy. It does go in uh, later into the article about you mentioned Cardiff University and there was no scrutiny. Yeah. But it does say the administration of Cardiff University, Wales' premier research institution, is hardly likely to encourage the students and faculty to critically investigate the metrics, consortiums, St. Athen project, since the university itself, a business partner of one of the consortium's principal members. So in 2005, Cardiff University entered into a long-term strategic research alliance with Quintech. It, this is kind of also what the um, book mentions, uh, The Wound in the World, that with the military, they'll, like we said earlier, they'll recruit younger because at that age, you know, your kids are more impressionable. So you can't really go into universities. And I guess the same thing with universities. People, they have kind of an idea of what they want their life mapped out to be. But um, the way the military will kind of get around that is by going into partnerships with universities. And essentially, um, the reason is to get cheaper research out of it so you're not paying private firms you're paying perhaps students projects that inevitably end up as uh, you know r&d here's okay here's another interesting thing to help metrics win its bid with the uk department of defense of defense welsh politicians pulled out all the stops welsh mps in westminster formed an m4 st Athen parliamentary steering group made up of mps from all the four main political parties in wales labor conservatives liberal democrats and Applied Cymru in order to show the Assembly Government in promoting the bid and demonstrate there's an enormous amount of grassroots support in the community. The Welsh Government, for its part, assembled a Team Wales of eight civil servants comprising representatives from the Department of Education, Lifelong Learning Skills and the Department of Enterprise, Innovation and Networks, whose responsibility was to support and assist the St. Athen bid in any way they could. As a result of this collective effort, the entire St. Athen bid process, which concerned an investment project that politicians themselves expected to massively impact the Welsh economy and society proceeded without any public discussion, debate or opposition whatsoever. And most people in Wales, in fact, had never even heard of the St. Athen Defence Training Academy until it was announced in January 2007 and has already accomplished fact. When the bid was successful, all four of the main parties in Wales lined up to publicly avow their support. Surprise, surprise, the Wales Trade Union Congress issued a statement saying that the job creation is key to achieving social justice. And we welcome the priority the Welsh Government, the Welsh Assembly Government is giving to job creation. So job creation is clearly, if you didn't know, is clearly more important than the lives of a million people in the Middle East. What's more important than job creation? The largest newspaper company in Wales, Trinity Mirror, ran a high-profile campaign in its evening paper, the South Wales Echo, to gather, gather public signatures and support the metric metrics bid. I mean, it's really just mind-blowing, right? And what sort of Tanak says is that, like, moving to a knowledge economy, he's like, knowledge for what? He's like, he said, the knowledge and education and learning being embraced by Wales as part of the turn into knowledge uh, economy is essentially the knowledge and ability to, to kill people, right? That's, mm. like, what's part of the knowledge economy. And he's basically saying hey, some forms of knowledge aren't worth valuing. The main thing to take away from this is that Tanak basically says, he said basically the Welsh economy is founded on blood money. Um, he said that some forms of knowledge, education, skill and capital may be bad and undesirable for a whole host of social, cultural, political, environmental and ethical reasons. And he says the question for Wales now is just what blood money and its polit- have its political and business leaders accepted in their embrace of the St. Athens Defence Training Academy and what, in the end, must be seen as a Faustian pact 
making Wales a world-class, cutting-edge knowledge economy, no matter what the border cost may be. And the interesting thing, I've got a bit, bit of an interesting vignette about Stuart Tannock. So Stuart Tannock was at Cardiff at the time, um, and he was kicking up a fuss about this military-industrial complex and how well, all Welsh parties embraced it. And what I feared on the grapevine at Cardiff University is he was like shocked and disgusted to receive no sort of support from people in Cardiff Uni, really, and to be basically told by Welsh politicians to shut his mouth. Just to scroll, so, Wales Online, uh, 2016. The British Army's latest tanks are going to be built in Wales. When it's fully operational, 250 people will be working at the assembling a test tree factory at the Ajax family of armoury vehicles. Awesome. Right, what's the next one? Um, Daily Post, North Wales. Gwynedd Airfield is the prime site for drone testing in the UK. Amazing. And it's just like... Okay. Wales Online and everything, um, or general publications, will kind of hitch anything to do with Wales. There's just been a genocide committed in Baghdad, and one of the people behind it was Welsh. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, it'd just be incredible. Um, so, you know, Wales has been, you know, the Welsh, so much Welsh land and the Welsh economy is tied up with the military industrial complex. And, and rather than this being seen as a Faustian, a Faustian pact, like Stuart Tannock described it, it still enjoys like broad cross party support. All right, I, so that's, that's briefly, I guess uh, so with a broad um, cross-party support is you can't really be seen to be against it, can you? You can't because be seen just to be against like, jobs. Yeah. You can't be seen to be against or jobs. Or the military. Yeah. And don't get us started on jobs and military jobs. Like. Okay. So, some statistics. Attitudes towards the military in the UK. So what I did, the uh, British Social Attitude Survey, number 29, uh, asked loads of questions about the military. And yours truly, you know, I, you know, I went to the trouble of sort of disaggregating this and adding it by country, so you don't have to. So, how does Wales um, emerge, basically, um, compared to the compared to the rest of the rest to England, Scotland, and Wales? So, the question: Are you or have you ever served in Her Majesty's Armed Forces? Ten point six of Welsh people said yes. Five point nine of Scottish. Eight point nine of um, the uh, English, and that is consistent with the stats we already know that Wales is overrepresented in the armed forces. Um, okay, and then there was a, a question like, "What is your opinion of the armed forces? Is it, is it like high, very high, high, you know, or low, or whatever?" Highest. Um, there's, there's no low. Uh, surprise, surprise! The percentage of respondents who have a high or very high opinion of the armed forces: eighty-five percent for Wales, eighty-two point eight for Scotland, and eighty-four point four for England. So Wales has the highest. Uh, amount of people who had like a high, high, high level of support for the armed forces. Um, percentage of respondents who would like to see more of the national budget spent on defence, which is like a core pillar of militarism. England fifty two point six, Scotland fifty two point seven, Wales sixty point three. So Wales is the have significantly more people that want more money to be spent on defence. Basically, what what these statistics show essentially is that Wales is. A very very militarized country and we have to think of the ways in which the, how the welsh economy is oriented but also in terms of the values we spoke here about britishness being a martial identity and people always wonder like well why is uh you know well gee why did wales vote for brexit um why is wales so um so strongly british i mean militarism and support for the armed forces is an extremely important part of that so what happens in the first instance is if you're in wales and you're a poor country you have what's called economic conscription, whereby you know, there's no real good jobs left. So more people, more and more young people want to join the armed forces. And what that does, it basically normalizes 
the armed forces in particular areas. So you get what is known as local military cultures. So basically, like if from the valleys or if you're from like particular parts of North Wales, poor and more people join the army, more kids basically see people's parents who are in the army and their friends join the, the military or whatever, and then it becomes normal. And so what that does, and it creates a very strong local sense of belonging to the armed forces and through the armed forces you get a very strong sense of Britishness and that is one of the main ways in which Wales is and probably always will be a very British country is through this sort of huge respect it's got for the armed forces I mean and the other thing is that it's about Wales's international sort of clout yes you see like the Western Mail and things like that that people are genuinely proud that like Welsh soldiers are in Basra and Welsh soldiers are in like Afghanistan flying the Welsh flag. All little old Wales committing war crimes. Um, but you know, but there's this idea that you know, like, oh, you know, you know, we're part of this big superpower. You know, like we're, you know, we've got our part, like, you know. yeah, and it's 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 this vicarious sense of power on the world stage that Wales doesn't possess in any other arena. And when you're in school, uh, did you have anyone who was really obsessed with the TA? Not the TA, sorry. What was the one for kids? The cadets. Yeah. I did not. Did you know? Uh, so, I had a few. I went to Eaton though, so. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just their officer class, wasn't it? <laughs> that's mine cadet force, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, speaking of the militarization of youth. Hooray! Uh, sum up uh, and talk about uh, military recruitment in Wales and the militarization of the Welsh education system. Um, but for, for some context, I guess... So we've we've established how like militarized the UK is, but the British military, you know, has long been sort of recruiting in schools. You know, the British youth have long been sort of militarized. Pacifist groups like Forces Watch allege that the British military sort of deliberately and cynically targets it recruit its recruitment drives at schools in the most deprived parts of the UK, exploiting the lack of opportunities which exist for young people in these areas, uh, perpetuating what I've just said is this sort of system of economic conscription, and this. These visits, you know, luckily for researchers, have been very well monitored by people like Forces Watch and the Quakers, uh, who've made who have made great use of freedom of information requests. So, I'm, a, I'm just going to read from a finding from Forces Watch. In 2011 to 2012, the Army, Navy, and Royal Air Force, between them, made around 11,000 visits to UK secondary schools and colleges. The distribution of visits is uneven. In some areas, a very high proportion of schools and colleges are visited, sometimes multiple times in the same year. They, they give the example of an Edinburgh, of Edinburgh, where 96% of state secondary schools were visited by the armed forces between 2010 and 12, on an average of six times over the last two years, one school being visited 22 times in a year. Private schools are visited less, and the visits range from presentations on life in the armed forces, so outdoor team building activities. Uh, the Ministry of Defence admits that the two main outcomes of these visits are recruitment and providing positive information to influence future... Um, opinion formers i thought the army uh was just just abseiling yeah that's all it is yeah and skiing skiing sometimes you have to you know but very rarely overthrow democratically elected government um most of the time it's just helping like kids and stuff canoeing also in the lake district yeah find Uh, out what the army's really about (laughs) oh so oh yeah so um interestingly enough um whilst we were on recruitment i'll go back a sec uh rewinding a little bit but um have you seen the new uh latest advert a campaign that's called "Belonging." This is belonging. So anyway, um, it's again, Maybe I have, actually. as as like everything else, it's extremely well done. Like um, it's deliberately targeted. At, you know, they've fo- focused on belonging um, for to recruit sort of children from lower social classes. Mm. And the Guardian maintained uh, Guardian obtained a leaked 
inside circulation from the army, which said this. Um, so firstly, this uh, new advertising campaign uh, called Belonging is specifically targeted social classes C, D, and E. So like the three lowest social classes in the in the UK. Maybe it was B, C, D, but either way, it was like the basically and the you know we're not even talking like sort of a, like the pet you know lower middle class people. We're talking like extremely poor people, you know, like um, and the other interesting aspect of it was they were deliberately boosting this advert in Glasgow, in Cardiff, in the north. No way. Not in the southeast of England. So there's so all that would mean was that if you're in Cardiff, for example, there'd be far more of these adverts on your TV. There'd be far more adverts on billboards. There'd be far more adverts on buses than if you were in other parts of the country. So they're deliberately targeting areas which they know have high areas of sort of children and young people not in education or training. So, But luckily the army will do your GCSEs for you, won't it? Yes. If you sign up to do the army, right, on the day of your GCSEs, you get a soldier come in and in sit skin. down and do your maths exam. Um, all right, so um, I should have said it before. I mean, I, I skipped my own page, but the British army and the British military recruit soldiers at age 16 although children can begin the application process at age 15. Um, so child recruits, you know, those under 18, make up 20% of the annual armed forces intake. The UK is the only country in Europe to recruit child soldiers, as well as being the only country with a seat on the UN Security Council to do so. I mean, in terms of the how this has facilitated the militarisation of the of British youth, there's a number of institutions and pathways that play a part. You know, obviously each... Town in the UK has a cadet force. This can be Army, Navy, or Air Force. Many towns have all three. And, you know, and the cadets teach children how to handle firearms, shoot, and march. The British Army has a website. The British Army website is a children's section called the Camouflage, which is aimed it's at... It's really hard to find, though. Which, which is aimed at 14 to 16-year-olds, which includes features like a target shooting game and information about the Army's weaponry. And on top of this... You've got a thriving, like new further education sector of military preparation colleges, which has recently emerged, which basically offers employability and motivation, which is basically just almost like, it, although it is private, it's it's basically a formal part of the recruitment pipeline. And if you're in, certainly we're in Bridgend now, and if you, I mean, if you're in Bridgend or Cardiff, or if you're in Bangor or any, you know, large sort of town in Wales, you will see children walking around in camouflage and. You know, military preparation college t-shirts and that's uh just a key part of it and in england under michael gove gove sort of like openly embraced the militarization of like the english education system you know he, i mean there was actually an overarching education policy called military ethos which included initiatives like he said they were going to expand the school-based cadet system to create around 100 more units for 2015 they were delivering the troops to teachers program which aimed to increase the number of service leavers making the transition to teaching and like if you're using tabloid speak, this was all about dealing with problem children. I mean, was it the evening standard? It's going to fast track battle hardened troops from the front line of Afghanistan into classrooms to improve discipline and tackle jobs. So it's all about like disciplining problematic working class youth and in particular working class boys with protest masculinity and channeling that masculinity. Hey, you're being a pain in the ass in this classroom. So why don't you just be a pain in the ass with a gun in your hand and go and kill someone? The thing is with it, though, is just makes the kind of perhaps incorrect assumption that just because, you know, you've 
you've experienced uh, discipline within an army that, that can be transferred to a classroom. Yeah, only Rather with like an army, there are people to an extent who want to be there or at least have a similar type of outlook. I mean, there's a huge thing we can... I mean, the troops to teach... I mean, interestingly, the troops to teachers initiative is largely sort of flopped because he didn't recruit enough. But yeah, there's a, it's part of the systematic sort of degradation of the teaching profession that will actually don't need to do any... Why do you, you know, you don't need to be good at like managing kids. All you need to be able to do is yell at them. Mm. And, you know, like who gets more respect and someone that's killed, you know, but that's, that's, the, that's literally their, their logic. I mean, uh, anyway, 45 million mm. was spent by Gove in sort of militarizing English education system. And the question is like, you know, who is that for? Is it to benefit students? Is it to help the armed forces achieve their recruitment targets? Is it to help servicemen find jobs? I reckon it's to help them. We've got PTSD. Some of them killed children. Just, uh, it's just I mean, it's uh, the whole thing's out. Flashbacks, mental. like. Okay, so we're just briefly talking about you know like the militarization of English, the English education system. But what about Wales? Isn't Wales a progressive like nation of uh, of social democrats? Yeah, isn't full our, of them. Isn't our education system the most progr- you know? Isn't it the most progressive thing ever? It's the most progressive nation ever. Okay, so here are some statistics: armed forces visits disproportionately target. Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, areas which already disproportionately contribute more manpower to the British Armed Forces than their actual size. Okay, some of these stats, again, you know, Alex Jones, like, you can't believe it. Between September the 2009 and May 2012, 88% of secondary schools in Wales were visited by the Army. On average, schools were visited six times during this period, although some were visited as many as 22 times per year. In 2012, Wales received 6.6% of UK total school visits by the armed forces, despite despite comprising just 4.8% of the UK's population. Similarly, in 2006-7, the Army's outreach programme for 9-12 to year olds saw 984 activities take place in Wales, out of a total of 7,000, so slightly more, at 7.1%, than Wales' proportion of the UK population as a whole. My uh, research is about the militarization of the Welsh education system. I'm not going to bore you with my own statistics or, or paper or anything like that, but Forces Watches, Forces Watch have lobbied the Welsh government to stop recruiting in schools, right? So in 2015, they sort of uh, presented the Welsh government with that. Uh, it was a good report, wasn't it? It was entertaining. With basically a report saying that, you know... June 2015, stop so, the army recruitment so ba- in schools. Yeah, so basically, they, there's all a wealth of uh, evidence which shows that the recruits that join the army at, when they're 16, you know, basically have a far higher rate of PTSD than sort of people that join later in life. Because if you're going through basic training and if you're going through these traumatic sort of uh, experiences that army basic training puts you through, you know, teaching you how to kill, how to obey, having someone yell in your face, things like that when you're a child essentially this isn't going to do well for you later in life they're also overrepresented in like sort of the ranks of the unemployed and uh uh rough sleepers rather um they also serve longer on average in the armed forces but it's a very powerful presentation and it's basically immaculately researched by forces watch and also saying that like i mean it's also worth saying right that the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, right? So bear in mind, Wales has got the Future Generations Committee, uh, Future Generations Commission, so- Sophie Howe, um, who, and you know, we've got, you know, the, ostensibly a, a deep commitment to the rights of the child. The UN consistently have condemned uh, the British government for the policy of recruiting uh, children because, as I said, the UK is the only country in 
the you know with a seat in the UN Security Council that actively recruits children. You know, other major countries do it. Um, so on paper, you would think that Wales would want to sort of abide by the recommendations of the UN, uh, you know, the, the Commission on the Rights of the Child. But drum roll, Wabernith. Well, the Welsh government kind of came down the side of the. You know, well, you know, we let people, we let bakers come in, tell them about their job. It would be unfair to not let the army recruit. But I thought it was quite, um, they went to press that in school and they spoke to some of the kids about what they thought about, you know, army recruitment coming in. And a lot of the kids were really positive. Miss Miss Holly Hinson, she said, they get GCSEs and qualifications out of it, which they would not normally get in school. So it's really quite helpful. She was quite for it. I was trying to find the other... Yeah, she's oh, happy with it. Like, oh, they get teacher. no, they they're um. If you join the army, you get GCSEs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that, that, well, that's the that's the mental thing. It's like you know, you're saying that in school. I mean, it should be happening. It should be happening in your school. But what what happened was it predictably was it the Welsh government? Who who's on this committee? Uh, it's name and shame. Yeah. Um. I think I saw uh, Beth and Jenkins in there. Yeah, Beth and Bless who's on it. Um. So, but you know, can't pull any punches, can we? William Powell, Liberal Democrats, Russell George, Welsh Conservative, Joyce Watson, Welsh Labour, Beth and Jenkins, Plaid Cymru. So basically, they they it's like they fudged it. The Welsh the Welsh the, the committee absolutely bottled it, right? And what they basically said, they said, well, firstly, as they said, oh, you know, it's just a job like any other. But what it is, it's just basically saying that it's jobs. It's a, it comes always come back to the same thing in Wales. We, you know, that our kids need jobs. You know, what are we gonna? You know, it's like depriving these kids of a way out of poverty, basically. Not mm. thinking, oh, well, maybe there are other ways to solve this. But also, it gets for me at the fetishization of the military in, in Wales and in the UK. You can be one of the most progressive people in the world, but oh, can't criticize the armed forces. There's a kid in there. I can't remember his name, but he was part of the cadets, and he was, he seemed quite all for them until they took him away camping. He's like, oh, actually, this isn't for me. <laughs> but that, that's the thing with it as well. He's saying that you know, or we get like the real aspect of what it means to be in the military. We went out camping. It's like, yeah, you went out camping with a you know a big group of you. I doubt you're under shell fire. Like, and that's that's the kind of um, thing that was missed from the report was like you miss huge aspects of what the military is about or the consequences of being in the military. Well, you know, this, this is actually what the committee says. Any employer will legitimately target their recruitment efforts in the way that they would consider most appropriate to meet their needs. However, the armed force is unique in that they are the only employer where recruits accept as a normal function of their employment they may need to harm or kill other human beings. <laughs> Relatively high risk of injury or death are not unique to the armed forces, but asking recruits to deliberately put themselves in positions where these risks are maximised is also different to most other jobs. Thank you for clarifying that it's a unique job. From this perspective, inviting the armed forces into schools should perhaps be treated with considerably more care than other potential employers. Despite these fundamental differences, joining the armed forces is a legitimate and for many an appropriate and fulfilling career choice. Indeed, many of the roles in the forces do not involve combat or even significantly higher risk of injury or death than other similar fields of employment. Note it's not not death for them. No. What about the people who are being killed? There does seem to be evidence that armed forces disproportionately visit schools in areas of high, relatively high deprivation. However, there is no compelling evidence that shows the armed forces deliberately target schools in these areas. Well, there is now because the Guardian just obtained it. There's been like, okay, ex-army recruiters openly saying, yeah, of course we target hmm. or deprive kids. Moreover, presenting these forces from visiting schools 
as the petition wishes, could disadvantage some young people, including those from less affluent backgrounds, from accessing careers and training of a very high quality. Don't want to take that chance away from them, really. <sighs> so basically, they just fudge it and said, like, we, we won't stop it. So what they're doing there is they're violating their commitment to uh, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child and condoning the recruitment of children uh, to the armed forces. Right. It's fairly incoherent and rambling podcast, but it's the first one back, so give us a break. Um, yeah, give us a break. And we're going to wrap up by doing some shout-outs, but this is like more of an extended shout-out, which is pretty awesome, I think. Um, so basically, um, there was an, an episode like last month i think where i was ranting about like i basically said like oh loads of, you know a lot of people have sort of decided that you know they've switched from being leavers mm. uh, from remainers to leavers overnight because uh, corbyn told them to and i sort of thought that was funny then some guy sort of like chimes in on my um timeline and was like yeah it's a joke isn't it like you know all these people have done this and i said yeah that's like funny and then uh, <laughs> Where is it? This is uh okay. So basically, like he basic, so he's chatting to me, and he said that. Oh no, here it is. Okay, he was uh, so this guy is talking to me online, like to so Dan, not to the intern Desolation Radio Twitter account. He was out that day, wasn't he? Yeah, and so he was like, yeah, he was like, so I'm saying like loads of people seem to be you know really hard leave you know like let go in for the Lexit thing, despite I, th- I thought like they didn't really may not have researched that position or they, they, were, they were remainers until like two days ago. And he goes, yeah, it was like, and then he goes to me, yeah, it's like some of those people at that Desolation Radio podcast that Evan raves about just like basically called me a bell end for saying the same <laughs> thing. And I just said like, wait, back up. And like the first thing I laughed at, first thing was like, he was like the Desolation Radio podcast that Evan raves about. And I was yeah. like, oh, well, really? That's, thank you. But I was like, oh, that's awesome. And like, even if he was saying that like Desolation Radio was like an appalling, like, you know, awful he called it like he said it was like bernie bro behavior mm. but all i really cared about was like wait people rave about us that's that's awesome like you know? yeah we um, got listeners and so obviously that was like so i said wait back up i said to him like what's happened and he said well he got, he said i was arguing with one of the people on desolation radio and he just private messaged me and called me a bell end <laughs> and so i was like and then i said like i sort of broke cover and said wait wait you realize that like you know, Death Station Radio is like is is like my and Nath's like show. Like, and he he clearly didn't. He didn't. Like, there was a collective or something. Um, didn't and so he said no. And I, so obviously, like we've had like we've never had any contact with this dude. Like, or maybe I've like chatted to him, but like Death Station Radio certainly never never chatted to him. Desolation so, Radio so will I, never go out of his so way I, to so call I, people. So balance. I said like, what do you mean? Like, we've never had any contact with you. Like, why are you lying? He was like, yeah. And then he like blocked Nath. And then he was like, yeah, they definitely, like, uh, they messaged me and called me a bellend. I said, well, we had no contact with you. Why are you lying? He messaged me and said, oh, I've, I've got mixed up. He said, I was critical of one of your episodes. Um, and then he said, someone called Kieran <laughs> direct messaged me to call me a bellend. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'd assumed, he said, I assumed he was part of the team because I haven't listened before. And I can't say I, I stuck around to check where they were. And so he basically said, I got it wrong. You know, Kieran called me a bellend. And, you know, I thought he was like um, in Desolation Radio Crew. Um, so basically, what I will say is that Kieran Owen, you know, the boy, Kieran, pa, you know, pa, a.k.a. Par S. Thomas, 
Kieran is like part of our street team, and he's basically the muscle for Death Station Radio. Yeah. So even yeah. though that didn't that hundred percent didn't happen, um, <laughs> you're you know, knocking your door in the middle of the night. And basically, if you, rem- if you remotely criticize anything we do, or even if you say that episode like the sound wasn't very good, Kieran will direct message you on Twitter and call you a bellend. Um, <laughs> Guaranteed. Um, and like Kieran said, he was like. Why have, Kieran was like, why would I have Desolation Radio podcast in my bio? And like, it, so this guy's like, it, it was just so full of shit. He was just completely making stuff up for attention. It was really, it's really weird. And so basically what we said at the time was like to Kieran, even if he hadn't been doing it, you know, why not? Yeah. And if you, if you're part of the Desolation Radio crew, that's what we want to know. Like, why haven't you been, you know, you need to write, you need to write or die for us. And, and even if just, just message people at, who you don't know, or even if you do know them, and just say Bellend. Yeah. Or WhatsApp Bellend. Listen to Desolation <laughs> Radio. Um, we really want to expand as as uh, creatively as possible. It's just absolutely the, the, it's such an amazing image of like us getting like people who follow us just like direct <laughs> messaging people they don't know to abuse them just because they've said something about our like the the show itself. Which is which is what we wanted when we started this originally. It's absolutely it's absolutely incredible. Um I don't know, yeah. So basically that's what that's what we wanted. Firstly we we've we've having like false accusations thrown at us and we've been seen as like problematic or something, I don't know, by some guy that's never listened to it. Yeah. Um it's pretty awesome. But the other thing I was like, wait, people don't know that I'm related to Destination Radio, which is <laughs> A really good thing, I think, for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can never separate the two things, can you? Because you don't want to sort of bring the podcast down. Um, mm. I don't want to bring it down anyway. Um, and the other thing we said we would do. So shout out to Kieran, uh, our enforcer, our protector, our angel. Uh, and the other thing we said we'd do. So basically, Julian Ruck has been big um, fan of the show. Julian Ruck has sort of basically been um, upping his sort of you know his weird sort of mad rants about the because the ruckus the welsh language but um we wanted to find some of julian ruck's fiction and we wanted to do like a dramatic reading of it okay here's an excerpt from julian ruck's novel adina's body oh my god adina's body would brook no argument her full breast stared at him (laughs) the dark nipples ordering his penis to attention there was nothing he could do. Ordering. I know. <laughs> those those nipples her, are so dark. Her hips and waist, discreetly lavish and intent, demanded touch and tongue. There was nowhere else to go. He took Adina's hand and led her back to the bedroom. He would find out what Al wanted tomorrow. Right now, touching and kissing the girl he loved was far more important. Adina had always rejected the so-called glory of the female form, resembling the emaciated tragedy of a drug addict or the anorexic wisps of flesh. What is he? Oh, I've got to start that again. Adina had always rejected the so-called glory of the female form, resembling the emaciated tragedy of a drug addict or the anorexic wisps of flesh that prance around the pages of fantasy fashion magazines and flashing catwalks. She believed that a woman should look like a woman, not a boy whose buttocks disappeared into one long streak of bone. <laughs> she loved her curves. Her breasts were perfect, round and firm, without any hint of collapse. Her waist was narrow and sculptured by a master into buttocks that could make any man plead for mercy. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. Uh, Those nipples are so dark and powerless. <laughs> she was an unapologetic specimen of femininity, a young woman with a will of her own, determined and with a body that would stretch the imaginations of most men. 
Most men. She knew where she was going. Okay, so that's part of the... Oh, wait. It's a, it's a different novel. Suddenly, he leapt up to the table and dashed, to the dilapid- dashed for the dilapidated toilet situated next to the stables. It had to be this toilet. <laughs> <laughs> it was reasonably soundproof and hardly ever used by anyone. He reached the toilet door, yanked it, op- yanked it open in a thorough state of panic, and let loose a surging Niagara of vomit. <laughs> At the same moment, his bowels detonated and nearly lifted him off the ground. For what? <laughs> For one hour, his arse and stomach continued to ambush him. All he could do was sit in the toilet and wail, Oh God! Oh God! Oh God! Over and over again. He wanted to die. Oh my God. Thing is, though, did he write that from experience? It's just like, how can I turn this barrison ordeal of just needing a shit and as the... I don't know, man. So that, you know, it had to be this some toilet. Coffee, it had to yeah. be this toilet. So there you go. Julian Ruck, uh, sort of like top, top writer. and uh, I can't believe he's, he has to self-publish. No, it's amazing. Shot. So yeah, so book a prize winner. Uh, shout out to Julian Ruck. Uh, keep up the good work with your writing, buddy, and keep up the good fight against the Welsh language because that's definitely the reason that you haven't succeeded in your literary career. Um, it seems to it seems to have trouble with a lot of language. To be fair, not just Welsh. Absolutely right. So starteth the next uh, season. Thank you for listening, Nathan. Any shout outs? Um, couldn't think of anything. Maybe El Nom El, Nom- uh, El Nombre. Who's El Nombre? Uh, that mouse who used to teach kids how to count on BBC. <laughs> God, man. Um, been... You haven't left the house in a while, have you? No, I haven't. <laughs> uh, shout out to me. I'm enjoying Stephen King's It audiobook. That's really good. The performance is amazing. Nice. Uh, I guess, guess that's it, really. Shout out to... Oh, no, of course. Shout out. So, um, maybe the sound quality has sounded... Hopefully, sounded oh, different yeah. to you uh, this episode. It's because we've got a new fancy setup, courtesy of a, a few people through Patreon, not Patreon, um, yeah, crowdfunder. Patreon. So uh, we've got new equipment now, which we're really grateful for. So uh, anyone who didn't contribute will have to listen to this in a lower quality. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been using our new equipment today, um, and we're so grateful for everyone that's chipped in. Like it's it, it's really humbling that people will actually listen. Um, and not just that, but you've, like, you've, you've put your money in your pocket and sort of helped us out. Yeah, um, it's more than we've done for the podcast. And now all we need to do is someone to teach us how to really use this equipment. So uh, any volunteers so who want to sort of help us out, because it's really the new equipment is like really fancy and it's there's so many buttons. There's really loads of buttons. And Nath, I don't believe him, but he says it comes it didn't come with an instruction manual. No. So. Uh, we might have to ask Brian again. Yeah, get um, Brian on to show us what the dials do. So anyway, um, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next time. All right. ta Bye. Yeah, I was hunted once. I just came back from Nam. I was hitching through Oregon, and some cops started harassing me. Next thing you know, I had a whole army of cops chasing me through the woods. I had to take them all out. It was a bloodbath. That's Rambo, dude. What? You just described the plot of Rambo.